Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hello, you're listening to Politics on the Couch. I'm Raphael Baer. Now, those are two simple enough sounding facts about what you're doing, listening to a podcast, and who you're listening to, me. But is that person, the one who sat at his desk recording what you're hearing now, the same me as I am now, doing something else somewhere else? Almost, but not exactly. All sorts of things have happened in between. The whole universe has moved on. And the self, the thing I identify as Raphael Bear, has also, by some small increment, become a bit different. If I listen back to this podcast in, say, 20 years' time, how much will I have in common with that guy? No, I'm not stoned. I've just been reading Being You by Anil Seth, Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Sussex, among other roles and accolades too numerous to list here. He's also the guest for this episode. Professor Seth is a global authority on consciousness. What it is, where it happens. The process that allows grey goo locked inside your skull to interpret the information uh, from the outside world and organise it into an experience that you call yourself. His 2017 TED Talk, under the title Your Brain Hallucinates Your Conscious Reality, is one of the most popular science lectures in the history of that series. His book is a bestseller, and with good reason. It makes some pretty intense scientific and philosophical concepts accessible to the non-expert mind, and it also blows the non-expert mind, and probably a few expert minds as well. But what does it all have to do with politics? Well, of course, that's why we wanted to have him on the podcast, so let's just get on with it. But before we do, an apology. Regular listeners will know there's no such thing as a regular listener to Politics on the Couch because we don't make them often enough. So if you've been waiting for this episode, I'm sorry you've had to wait so long. The good news is that the delay was caused by me writing a book and the book is now written. And if you like Politics on the Couch, I'm pretty sure you'll like Politics, A Survivor's Guide. That's the title of my book. It's out next spring, but available already for pre-order, which I, of course, urge you to do. Well, I would, wouldn't I? But... I hope you'll enjoy it. Uh, You can find links to do that on my website, 
www.raphaelbear.com. That's raphaelbear, all one word, .com. Please order yourself a copy of Politics, A Survivor's Guide. Fairly confident you won't regret it. Now, that's enough self-promotion. Let's go exploring the science, philosophy, and yes, the politics of consciousness with Professor Anil Seth. A lot of the political implications of consciousness science are found in questions of intelligence, sentience, whether those things confer rights, and whether machines might one day have them. But you can't have that conversation without first pinning down some of the terminology. So that's where we started. I asked Anil to help clarify what exactly we mean by some of the underlying concepts. Consciousness is a word that has, has many different definitions, especially depending which, which field you're in. But for me and for a lot of people in, in neuroscience and philosophy, a very basic definition of consciousness is that for a conscious organism, there is something it is like to be that organism. It feels like something to be me. It feels like something to be you. It feels like something to be uh, a chimpanzee, probably. It probably feels like something to be a cat or a bat or a kangaroo, but it probably doesn't feel like anything to be a table or a chair or, or a laptop computer. There's probably nothing going on for that system to be itself. This definition of consciousness doesn't imply any sophistication to the kind of experiences that a system has. You, know, you don't have to be particularly intelligent to experience pain or suffering or, or pleasure. Intelligence is a very different quantity altogether. Intelligence, again, is quite hard to define. There's been lots of back and forth about it in psychology over the years. But broadly speaking, intelligence is the ability to do the right thing at the right time, maybe to behave according to goals. Now, in humans, the two are quite linked. At least we often feel they're quite linked. We feel what's special about us is that we are both intelligent, or we think we are, and we're conscious. So we tend to link them together. But in principle, they can be quite different. You, know, you think about artificial intelligence systems now, you can have quite smart algorithms doing all sorts of things, good and bad, without it feeling like anything to be an AI algorithm. And then in the animal kingdom, there may be very, very many animals which, you know, they behave very um, adaptively in their own environments, but we wouldn't call them smart by human intelligence standards. Now, this is something that, that actually surprised me uh, when I was reading your book, because you apply the, the definition of consciousness uh, and that sense of there is something that it is like to be a conscious being broadly enough that actually I was, I was struck by uh, how low the bar is <laughs> in terms of what can constitute a conscious being as distinct from an intelligent one. And I just want to drill into that a little bit because you say there is nothing that it is like to be an iPhone uh, and there is something that it is like to be a bat. So the first question is, how can we be sure, or rather how can we be sure that even if the current generation iPhone isn't processing the information and, and, and sort of making predictions about the universe and trying to understand what the best thing for it to do is to provide the iPhone service, that at some stage crosses a threshold that to the iPhone starts to be at least to an iPhone what it is like to a cat to be a cat or a dog to be a dog? I don't think we can be absolutely sure because we don't know in neuroscience yet what the sufficient conditions are for a thing to be conscious. I mean, this is still quite a mystery, still a very big mystery. But there are no good reason to think that just by making an iPhone a bit more powerful, a bit more 
a bit smarter in various ways is going to cross any particular threshold. And one big question here is whether consciousness depends on the kind of stuff something is made of. We're made of carbon, we're, we're made of meat, we're made of flesh and blood. Does that matter? Some people say it doesn't matter and that if you program a computer in the right way or build a robot in, out of the, you know, in the right kind of structure, that it could be conscious. But the only systems for which we're fairly confident consciousness happens are other biological systems. So it may be, and this is, I mean, it's a longer argument here, but it may be that for something to be conscious, it also has to be alive. Now, this is, this is a contentious thing. This happens to be what I think, but it's certainly not what um, other, all other philosophers and, and neuroscientists would, would agree with. But it's a position you can defend. The reason um, that this sort of surprised me, this distinction where, you know, you can have something that's a relatively simple but animate alive organism that has consciousness, but a, a sort of a notionally very intelligent in the sense that we use it in a limited way of machines think uh, might not be conscious. I think when I probed my own sort of surprise at that, it came down to a question of the difference between consciousness and self-consciousness. And I think as a, as a sort of human being, I want to privilege the sort of theory of mind, the idea that I'm able to project not just a sense of myself and what it's like to be me in my head, but also that, you know, I, I can sort of make a hypothesis about what it's like to be Anil Seth as well. I might be completely wrong, um, but at least, you know, I can make judgments about your consciousness and also I can have meta-consciousness. I can be conscious of the fact of being conscious. And I think that for a lot of people, that's really what we're talking, that's really commonly what is meant by consciousness, that sense that there's this much higher order of cognition that isn't just uh, echolocation in bats or an incredibly developed sense of smell in dogs. Yeah, that's right. That is quite a common interpretation. And I think that can be the source of a, a bunch of confusion because there is a difference between just being conscious, which is, which is more than just being able to sense information, like a bat echolocates, but there's still something else maybe going on for that bat that it feels like something to be this echolocating flesh and blood flying bag of stuff. But we could build a robot that has LIDAR or other kinds of, of radar and things like that, which can also sense its environment, but it may not. There'd be no good reason to think that that flying robot drone feels anything to be that drone. It feels its environment in a particular way. But then on the, on the other side, you, you're right that we humans tend to, we tend to emphasize the aspect of consciousness that has these higher level aspects to it, this, this elaborate, explicit sense of self, that it's not only that I experience the world around me, I know that I experience that and I relate it to a sense of self, a, a personal identity, which has a, a past and a future. But this sense of identity, this self-consciousness, this can be thought of as just a fairly maybe human distinctive aspects of consciousness, not something that's always there for every conscious species. And in fact, even in humans, when we're born, we probably don't have this highly developed sense of self. Human babies only learn to recognize themselves in the mirror at the age of about 12 to 18 months. But I think it would be very unusual for people to claim that they were lacking all conscious experiences before then. Now, I want to come back to that sense of self because I think it's incredibly important you know, it, once this, the question of 
consciousness crosses over into the questions of, of sort of social organization and, and ethics, but you use the word feel quite a lot. And that seems to me to be a word that need, we need to drill into a bit. So, you know, when we talk about sentience in animals, that seems to be something distinct from consciousness as it's more commonly used. Are those more or less actually the same thing that sentience, the, the capacity to experience things in a way, I suppose what I'm trying to say is, if you can infer suffering, feeling, I mean, that or happiness, happy feelings, doesn't have to be bad feelings. Are we therefore in a, a qualitatively different realm of experience to anything that a very, very advanced iPhone might ever have going on inside it? I think at the moment we are. So this basic capacity that organisms have, as you say, to feel things, it could be good or bad, just is unlikely to be present. There's no good reason to think that it's present in any current or near future technology. Just because something can persuade us that, that it's able to, well, just because something can interact with us in, in some reasonably sophisticated way doesn't mean that it feels like anything to be that thing that is interacting with us. Let's take this into a, sort of a, a specific example that will probably help, or hopefully help uh, listeners to this sort of understand where this is going, at least in my head. Um, if you think about HAL in 2001, Space Odyssey, uh, the, the scene where the HAL's memory is being sort of dismantled and, and there's kind of pathos in it. Now, this is obviously fiction uh, and designed to achieve a certain cinematic effect. But the theoretical example where you have a machine that gives such an incredibly plausible communication of what it is like to experience suffering in some way. It's easy to imagine, we're not far off the, the stage where that becomes a question of, of how concerned we should be that that kind of machine has rights equivalent to the rights that we might give animals or even other people. What I think is on the, on the horizon, very close actually, is a sort of HAL-like scenario from 2001. And we already have these large language models that Google and other AI firms are churning out, which are incredibly impressive in holding dialogues. Now, they've really improved a great deal. Earlier this year, there was quite a fuss over this large language model called Lambda. And one of the Google engineers who'd been involved in building this, this model claimed that it was conscious and argued that it indeed should have rights. And, and he got fired from, from Google for, for saying these things. And you know, I think he was wrong. And in fact, if there's one thing that united a notoriously fractious AI community, it was the agreement that this engineer was, was wrong, was talking nonsense, because we know what's in a large language model. It's just a bunch of algorithms processing data. It's, it's a system that's just designed to churn out an output that it's learned to predict uh, a human being would react well to. That's what they do. And we, we get Sorry to interrupt, but can we, I just, because this is, as I sort of understand it in, in AI, the distinction between, originally there was a distinction between machines that were just incredibly fast at processing information. So when uh, Kasparov first lost to, uh, was it Deep Blue, the chess robot, you know, it, well, there was just a question of, it could go, the machine could go through the chess combinations faster than any human could. And then we've sort of get to the next stage beyond that, where, you know, uh, as AlphaGo can teach itself these games, it's just a, operating at a different level of what we'd call intelligence. Um, and if I understood you right, what you're saying is you can keep pushing that kind of dynamic information processing data, sort of managing sophistication closer and closer to the way we can 
imagine a brain deals with information, but you're, you're, you're sort of still on a track that's not getting towards consciousness. That's just a different thing that is happening in even the most sophisticated information processing thing. And therefore, if it gets incredibly sophisticated at replicating what we would expect a conscious thing to do, actually, there's a, there's a kind of an ethical trap there. You're just going to get really, really good at gaming the anthropomorphizing tendency of humans rather than actually develop a conscious thing. Does that make sense? That makes perfect sense. There's, it's, I think it's really important to separate these two scenarios because one is, is ultimately we have to be a bit agnostic about, but it's a bit further away. And the, the agnostic one that's further away is whether any of these future machines actually become conscious, actually begin to feel things, actually deserve rights, and, and so on. Now, it could be that some far future iPhone or AlphaGo or large language model crosses this threshold. We, we, don't, we just don't know. Like, it's still an unknown whether consciousness is the kind of thing that you can program a computer and it will have it, or whether it depends on the stuff. We know that you're not going to get there simply by making alpha go faster and faster and faster and faster. It just gets better and better and better at doing the one thing that it does. But it might be possible to get there another way by copying the functional architecture of the human brain more closely. So, thing, so machines do things not just well, but they do them in the same sort of way that we do them. That's still a far off scenario. And there's still a big unknown that we don't know whether such a thing would just be simulating consciousness, simulating or conscious intelligence, the way we do things when we're conscious, or whether it's actually instantiating it, giving rise to it. Like think of, a, think of how a, a computer simulates the weather. I mean, we all rely on weather forecasts these days, and they've got a lot better. They've really got better over the last 10 or 20 years. But even a future weather forecasting computer that's so good that it can tell us whether it's going to rain on March the 17th next year, there's never a threshold that you cross where it suddenly actually gets wet and windy inside the system that's simulating the weather. It's only just a better simulation of weather. That's never going to change. So it could be that our AI systems are a bit like that. They might get better and better and better, but there's never going to be a threshold where suddenly the game changes and it gives rise to the thing it's very good at emulating. Now, the near future scenario, I think, is much more concerning, which is that a couple of language models in the future, we'll get systems which are incredibly persuasive that there's a conscious mind behind them because that's what they're designed to do. As you say, they're gaining our anthropomorphic tendencies to attribute minds to things that interact with us in particular ways. And that could be very, very socially disruptive because I think we might face a situation where we're just unable to shift the impression that these systems give that they are conscious in, in the same way that there are all these visual illusions out there that, you know, two lines that are different lengths actually look the same. And even when you know the lines are different lengths, you can't help seeing them as being the same. They're what we call cognitively impenetrable in psychology. I mean, I'm thinking here rather than of, of, of a visual illusion like that, I'm thinking of the sort of the evolution of the Labrador's eyebrows, right? So Labradors look cute and they have evolved these sorts of eyebrows that are incredibly well sort of evolved, designed by nature to make humans go, oh, give the dog a treat, which is why Labradors always get fat. Um, but that, you know, what you're inferring in the face of the Labrador isn't actually probably comparable to what we imagine is going on inside the Labrador. So we're projecting a human emotion onto that. And so, and it's very hard to ignore that. And, and so a very sophisticated robot would be incredibly good at doing that. But my question then is, 
at the moment, you know, you, you sound quite confident that we, that we think that's an illusion. But the problem is, you know, there's a sort of science fiction scenario where the machine is, is desperately trying to persuade you that it is, you know, sort of a Blade Runner scenario. It's definitely trying to persuade you that it really is experiencing this thing. And you're saying, I, I resist this. You do not have the rights that would be equivalent to you know, a, a human who was experiencing the thing you have an incredibly effective simulation of experiencing. And we simply won't know. And therefore, at what, there doesn't there become an ethical point where you have to give the benefit of the doubt to the thing that in every respect brilliantly demonstrates everything you could reasonably expect it to show if it was sentient. I think what this reveals is the urgency of actually understanding what gives rise to pain, suffering, and so on in humans and in other animals, so that we avoid putting ourselves in that position of, ha- of only being able to rely on how well an artificial system is able to manipulate our own anthropomorphic tendencies so that we end up feeling that we can't deny it the sorts of rights and things that we would naturally attribute to something when we really thought that it was in pain, had the capacity for suffering, and so on. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. When we go into that area then of, of pain and suffering. And you say it's important to understand, you know, what the origins of, of those are. Let, let's, let's think about something like a feeling of loss, you know, which is, so if I've stolen something from my robot and it complains or it's, you know, you, the howl situation where it's sort of, it's losing its memory and it, it's it theoretically suffering from that. This is, gets really hard now for hard even for me to express the question, but that is in itself a perception that feeling, that emotional sense of suffering, how is that different, if it is different at all, from other perceptions such as, mm, that's a delicious strawberry or that table is red? The feeling of, you know, a pang of loss, homesickness, is that in any way a qualitatively different thing to the table is red? Well, yes, in, in the sense that it's precisely the qualitative differences that define the different experiences we have, that give them the character that they have. Looking at the sunset and, and seeing a beautiful red sunset is a particular kind of qualitative character of experience. The pang of jealousy or the sharp pain of a, when you stub your toe on something, that is another kind of qualitative character. They are different. There is a similarity, though, and that what I argue in the book and, and the work that I've been doing over the years is trying to push the view that every experience we have, whether it's a visual experience of the world around us or something that's more 
laden with, with valence, with goodness and badness like pain or joy. They're all forms of perception. They're all ways in which the brain is making predictions about the causes of sensory data. Sometimes the sensory data come from beyond the body, visual signals, light, light waves from, from the world around us. Sometimes the signals come from within the body, reflecting the state of the body, how well the heart is beating, blood pressure levels, and so on. And it's typically when the brain is interpreting, making predictions about the causes of signals that come from within the body, the qualitative character of what the brain then perceives has uh, valence, has emotional content, things are good or bad or varieties on that theme. But it's all a bit of a mixed bag because, of course, we look around us and if it's a beautiful landscape, that has an emotional content too. But what we might be perceiving there is not is the, the world around us and our body responding in a particular way so that we have this, this joined up experience where everything that we experience has some kind of emotional content. Right. This has a very strong ethical implications, though, doesn't it? In, in a sense, someone said to me recently that if you think the world's out to get you, you're probably tired. And if you want to get the whole world, you're probably hungry. Now, if you think everyone hates you, you're tired. If, if you hate everyone, you're probably hungry. That there's a sense that how you perceive the world is so shaped by, you know, all those, the physiological as well as the, the sort of perceptual inputs. And as you write in the book, you're kind of predictive model of, of what you're perceiving out there. But then it follows from that, that quite a lot of what we in politics want to judge by some more universal, or for want of a better word, objective metric, isn't any more available to us than why one person likes broccoli and another person doesn't. So let me put that another way. People can intuit there's a difference between the table is red and mm, delicious strawberry, although these are all part of that spectrum of, of sort of perceptual inference that you describe. But what about, I think Brexit was a great idea, you might think Brexit was a terrible idea, for the sake of listeners, they know I don't think Brexit was a great idea. But anyway, you see what I mean. Is that actually itself such a construct of that perceptual dynamic that you described that we really have to approach these questions politically in a different way to the, the way we've been doing policy basically for a lot for generations? Uh, there's a lot to unpack in that, but basically, I yeah, sorry, <laughs> that was a big question. But I think I think you're right. My suspicion is that there's a through line from basic observations about how we perceive the world around us. You know, we open our eyes and, and see a car across the road and think the car is a green car, let's say. And these big questions about Brexit, about abortion, maybe political questions that, that drive a lot of polarisation. And the through line is that everything that we experience and everything that we believe is a kind of construction of the brain. And we all have different brains. So when we open our eyes and look around, what's happening is it seems as though we see the world as it is. It doesn't seem like our experiences of the world are dependent on our own minds and brains. Now, I look out and I see a red car and it just seems to me that, well, that's how the world objectively is in a mind-independent way. But what's actually happening is that my brain is constructing that experience in a way that depends on its own particular wiring. And in most cases, we'll agree about what we see. If you and I were standing next to each other, or if I was standing next to somebody who really thought Brexit was a, was a great idea, we'd probably still agree that there was a red car across the road. 
But I don't know whether this person is having the same experience of red that I am. They may be having a different experience. In fact, they probably are having a slightly different experience, but it's not a radically different experience. It's similar enough that it doesn't surface into our behavior and language. But then as we get further and further away from this common ground, our inferences, our brain's inferences can start to diverge. Because what we'll do is the brain is always trying to confirm its predictions in some sense. Its, its ability to perceive is built on the idea that it's always trying to update its predictions to make them fit the data that it gets. And as we sort of become more and more abstract, we can end up in situations where we seek out different data to confirm these predictions and so end up perceiving different things and even end up believing different things. Well, now you said, sorry, sorry, you said two really interesting things there. One was slightly and the other one was abstract in different bits of the sentence. I, the slightly, I, I, yeah, I'm glad you said that because I wonder, would it be fair to say that if you're, I'm trying to imagine a sort of a spectrum of sort of available a common ground where at one end is the fact that it hurts when you get hit by a bus. Yeah, there, there is an objective yeah. reality there that even if the shade of red of the bus is slightly different in your head as it is in mine, that's not that's kind of immaterial to the fact that we can agree vastly on every almost everything about that experience. And then at the other end, you know, whether or not we, we, which party we vote for, whether or not we think Brexit is a good idea. And that at that more abstract end, is that the, where the sort of the, the data set is we're drawing from has become that much more abstracted from the material world, for want of a better term, that our brain's interpretation, our construction of a model of reality on that is basically more likely to be unique to us. And therefore, and from that, then one last question on top of that if it is unique to us is it fair to say sometimes it is just wrong or it, 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 can you not actually say that it is if it's if it's my consciousness and my perception of it it can't actually be that wrong i think being wrong or right at the wrong <laughs> the wrong criteria to apply just to sort of almost contradict myself there i think at these higher these sort of more abstract levels you know what's happening is not is is not necessary that our beliefs about things become totally individually distinctive. I think that what's happening here is that there are structures that you can think of. I was reading a very nice paper by, by a guy called Nathan Wheeler from University of Toronto. He talks about the idea that at the social level, ideologies play a role in shaping our beliefs in much the same way that basic models of the world, you know, the physical world, play a role in how we perceive things like tables and chairs and cars. Now, in, in both cases, in order to make sense of the data around us, the brain needs a model of the causal structure of its environment. And at low levels, you know, low being kind of the perceptual world we live in, this causal model of the structure in the environment is things like, you know, buses hurt when you hit, when you stand in front of them, light bounces off surfaces in particular ways, and so on. So we can make sense of the visual world, the auditory world, and so on. Um, at higher, more abstract um, levels, the causal structure of the world is governed by you know, other minds, what people will say, how they will respond to, to ideas, to statements. And to be able to predict how other people will respond to things, you, know, you have things like systems of ideology, systems of belief. 
those are kind of causal models of how people will behave. So you can think of kind of ideologies as emerging as a kind of collective way to make it able to better predict what other people will do. That does still raise a massive ethical quandary then, at least where you draw the bounds of the community, the social community, within which it makes sense to use that ideological model and it all adds up. And so just to give it some specific example, I'm now thinking, I want it to be as close as you can get to a fact like the table is red, except it's never going to be achieved quite that level of factualness, but I want it to be a fact that, uh, you know, racism is wrong or that, you know, say Vladimir Putin's invasion of Ukraine was a was a bad act. That's an ethical judgment. I think it was wrong, but I want that to be true in quite a substantial way. Now, within you know, the 160 million odd people who are currently living in Russia and a lot of them watching Russian television, they have a very effective, well-constructed environment in which their perception of the world and every all the data that they are using to model their view of the world will absolutely convince them of something different regarding that war. And in this sort of hypothetical court of you know, absolute moral judgment, their defense is, well, it, it was right in our model of the universe and all of our consciousness. So there's more of us than there are of you. So we win. We're right. And I don't, I worry that the model you've just described doesn't give me any kind of ethical purchase to argue against that. Okay. So I think, I mean, there's, a, there's a, again, a huge debate here that goes back for centuries about whether you can derive ought from is, you know, whether there are moral absolutes you know, that can be kind of empirically identified. I think the picture I'm outlining allows for sort of moral absolutes. It allows for us to define those. But what it's suggesting is that we might be misled in identifying these moral and ethical absolutes just on the basis of how things seem to us. We need independent reasons for establishing those. And there are independent reasons, at least I think so. I mean, a good, a good candidate is that suffering is a bad thing. Imposing suffering is a bad thing. Of course, this then gets finessed in all, all different ways. You know, suffering in the long term, suffering for who, but one could still evaluate different models of the world in terms of a criteria like that and come up with some conclusions about what is bad, what is good, what is right according to that criteria, what is wrong according to that criteria. And in a sense, my hope is that this kind of framework of, of understanding that our perceptions and our beliefs, our constructions will actually help us in the, in the effort to find and stick to these moral decisions that we collectively make as a society so that we don't get diverted into, you know, by, by conflating them with, with our relatively malleable perceptual models and cognitive models of what's going on. Another way to put it is that you know, the fact that we might perceive the world slightly differently you know, does not mean that our perceptions are totally disconnected from reality or that there is no real world. As you said earlier, if you go and stand in front of a bus, well, it's, it's going to hurt you when it hits you. And it doesn't matter how you perceive it. That's, that's just true. You know, that's just a fact. So there can be things which are just true, which are just facts, which are independent of how we might perceive them or what we might believe about them. But understanding that how we perceive things and what we believe about things are constructed, I think helps us get under the hood. You know, we, we get, it just helps us in understanding that we can recognize uh, 
our perceptions for what they are, we can then be clearer about what it is that we want to be the case, independent of how we might perceive it. Right now, this leads nicely onto for what for me is perhaps the most challenging, well, certainly one of the most challenging aspects of of your book, which is when you then extrapolate from you know, that that the, the problem of distinguishing or understanding how much of the universe is, is well, as you describe it, a kind of a controlled hallucination that we're all constantly negotiating between what is actually an objective reality and our ability to construct a workable model of how we can function within it, but that the self itself is part of that sort of controlled hallucination, that there, we, we, we've, we have a constructed idea of what it means to be me, because that is actually a, a fantastically useful model for navigating in the world. Uh, and, you know, you said absolutely rightly a minute ago that the philosophical problem of how do you have objective values in an entirely materialistic view of the universe, you, you know, that's been a problem forever. And, you know, existentialism, Nietzsche, Dostoevsky, everyone's grappled with it. And I just generally think probably it's, there are things that are right and wrong. But when you then get to the point where the self is understood as a perception, mm-hmm. then you have a different, it strikes it right to me, a different ethical quandary that emerges, which is, is the person that did a bad thing in the past sufficiently attached to the person that I am now to be entirely responsible or that my the responsibility is, is communicable on over time indefinitely or at some point not. Do you see what I mean? It seems to me that responsibility for action starts to fray a bit if the self is that protean. Yeah, this is this is definitely true. And I think it's going to pose a lot of complications because the whole, at least the Western system of, of law and, and responsibility is predicated on a very naive view of self, which is that there is this kind of unitary essence of self that is that is ideally rational and so can therefore be held responsible for, for actions. And it's, it's, what is it, mens rea and actus rea. You need to, you need to have done something um, and you need to be of, of, have the motivation, the mind, the sound mind to do it. And certainly this idea of a rational mind being behind every action is just wrong in all sorts of ways. It's, it's firstly wrong because, as we've discussed earlier, emotion is bound up in everything. So we don't make decisions in a kind of cold, rational space. We, we don't make good decisions in that space anyway. Everything that we do is bound up with emotion. We can't make effective decisions without the contribution of so-called irrational processes like, like emotion. But secondly, there's this whole idea of what we do voluntarily, what we do of our own, in quotes, free will. And this, you know, there's a, this is a, a huge rabbit hole. Because we, we have this, we've inherited this idea that everything we do, you know, or, or that there's this key distinction between things we might do reflexively, like if I kick you in the knee, you might reflexively jerk your, your leg up a little bit, and things that I do in the inner motivation, voluntarily, intentionally. And those are the things for which I can be held responsible. But now, what is this thing that we call free will? There's no spooky essence of me that sort of swoops into my skull and pulls strings in my brain to make things happen. Certainly the way I see it, free will is a kind of perception of some of the actions that we make. It's the actions that come largely from within. But there's nothing spooky or mysterious about that. They're still caused by my brain and body being in a particular state. And now my brain and body are changing over time. So if I do something at one time, and then years later, 
I will be a different person. Should I still be held responsible for what I did then? Also, even what I did then, if I did something bad, maybe it was because my brain was in a particular state that I didn't choose to put it in. And this could have been because of the environment I grew up in. It could have been the social economic circumstances of my growth, or it could indeed have been that I developed a brain tumor. And there's been already some cases in in law where people have raised a defense that they committed a crime because they had a brain tumor and that caused them to feel and therefore act in a different way. And some of these cases are successful. And what's interesting here is that we, I think, have some intuitive sympathy for these cases. Like, If I did something because I was ill, because I had a tumor, then it seems natural to say, okay, it wasn't, wasn't, wasn't my fault. It was because I had this tumor. But then as we understand more about the brain basis of how we make any action, you can sort of think that we're, it's, it's brain tumors all the way down for all of us. It gets very difficult because then you say, well, I shouldn't be responsible for the person I hit with my car when I was driving drunk because I'm addicted to alcohol. And actually my volition as to whether or not I was drunk at that time was completely compromised by my alcoholism. Uh, you know, so it gets, and let's say we define alcoholism as a sickness, then that's a brain tumor defense. I mean, I'm not actually seriously making that defense, but it gets incredibly complicated. And, and what... I'm fascinated by here, and this gets a little bit philosophical, but then we are pretty philosophical already, let's face it. This question of, of free will, I mean, this is a hard one in, in philosophy going back, again, centuries, because there is, there is a sort of Hume view, crudely speaking, where you don't really have free will, but you have such a fantastically elaborate illusion that you, know, you make a decision and something happens as a result of it, that to function as a human being, you, you, you operate as if you had free will. Uh, then you have the, yeah, so that's a sort of this ultra materialist view, which is yeah, even though we humans can't model every single bit of the chemical and equations and laws of physics that are making the universe operate, it is all just atoms colliding. And clearly you don't have free will in that universe. It's just, you know, it's a self-propelling giant equation. Or, you know, the, at the furthest other end of the spectrum, you have to, you know, essentially a religious view, God gave you free will and you can do as you choose to go to grace or not. And maybe I'm wrong here, maybe I'm, I'm but, but it, it seems to me that you've, you're identifying a kind of a middle way, <laughs> which would be quite handy, which is that the construction of the perception of self is real because it's a function of the material, but it is also an actual act of will at that moment. And therefore you do have free will in an entirely materialistic universe, massive philosophical problem solved. <laughs> if I think it was so easy. I mean, I, I'm, <laughs> I think we should just take, it, take your word for it. No, I, I think there is a middle way. I, I, I don't think it's entirely clear what that middle way is because it still just turns on these multiple definitions of, of will and an act of will. But there's a whole space in philosophy that we call compatibilism, this idea that there are sensible, reasonable conceptions of free will that are compatible with just this, I think you put it beautifully, this vast equation, self-propelling equation um, that just determines everything that happens. And I think that the way I think of this middle ground is that we are complex organisms. Some of the actions that we make come largely from within. Maybe, as you said, I grew up in a particular environment. I've been instilled with, with particular values and so on. So some of the actions, or, or even my decision to have a cup of uh, decaf coffee this morning rather than caffeinated coffee, I mean, that, that comes from 
some sort of that's a that's a morally execrable decision by the way <laughs> that's I would an say, absolute moral wrong I, well, I've, I've forgiven you for it just let's move on for that quickly uh, but there are these some things that feel feel intentional feel voluntary to me that felt like a choice that, that I made but of course I made it for reasons but where did those reasons come from you know, ultimately they came from my history where I grew up etc cetera, etc cetera, my evolutionary history as a human all this business um, so I didn't choose to have the reasons that made me choose to to have a decaf coffee. But in the moment when I am pulling the, you know, pouring the coffee into the jar, these actions are coming from within. And my brain perceives these actions as coming more from within than being imposed on me externally. And the idea I explore in the book is that when the brain is perceiving actions that the body makes as coming largely from within, it attaches a kind of perceptual character to them that we call free will. That's what we experience as free will. Now, it doesn't mean that there is this sort of spooky kind of free will that is actually making these happen at the time. No, there are just complex chains of cause and effect that unfold through my brain and body uh, back back in time. But why do we therefore have this experience at all? And here I think it's really, there's a really interesting idea. And it relates to all of perception. Like you can think back to how we experience color. If I experience the car across the road as being red, it doesn't actually mean that redness exists in the world. But the experience of red is very useful for brains like ours to have because it helps us keep track of objects when lighting conditions change and so on. The experience of free will that we have is useful not because it causes an action in the here and now, but because it labels certain actions as coming from within. So part of the experience of feeling that an action was intentional is the feeling that I could have done something else. Like I could have had caffeinated coffee. I could have done. I could have been sensible, but I didn't. Now I had decaf coffee. Now the reason that I feel this could have done otherwise is because I might finally, as you say, see the light and realize that that didn't, didn't turn out too well. My brain still isn't working during this conversation. So next time I record a podcast, I'm going to have proper coffee. So free will, the experience of free will is not for the here and now. I think it's so that we might indeed do differently in the future. Oh, that's very interesting. So it, that is part of that. I mean, you talk a lot in the book about the sort of the Bayesian modeling that enables you to get to the the best available guess of reality. And but also in such a way as is sufficiently compatible with other people's models of reality that you can then function together as a society and so that that sense that you know i don't want that use the word illusion of free will but it's a perception of will is an incredibly powerful tool that gives you the confidence that the next time you'll get it right but also presumably you can predict the way other people will behave i mean this is again this sense that you know it doesn't really matter so much that your perception of red is exactly the same as mine but if I think that you are a being with experience of free will pretty much the same as mine, then we can organize together as a society much more effectively. So you, the, the evolved, the evolutionary function of that becomes clear very quickly then. That's actually a very good point. I think that's another layer on it. I don't think you need that. I think we could identify useful aspects of experiences of free will without that social regulatory component just in terms of an individual organism figuring out what, what works and what doesn't. But that adds a very interesting new layer that indeed by attributing will as a causal factor in people's actions, that's a very good model that makes other people's behavior predictable in some sense. 
And of course, the more we use that model to interpret other actions, the more we might use it to interpret our own actions. So there's, there's an interesting school of thought that says the reason we have a sense of self is because the brain first learned, evolved to be able to predict the behavior of others. So the attribution of a sense of self to others was a useful causal model to predict the behavior of others. And only then did we turn it in on ourselves and realize that this same model could be used to predict our own behavior. And hey, presto, we've got a sense of self that the psychologist Chris Frith talks very nicely about that. But I just wanted, I've got to get back one thing I keep wanting to, to interject here is that you've said a few times that it doesn't much matter if we experience the shade of red slightly differently. And I think it might matter quite a lot, actually, firstly, because we just don't know. So there's this assumption, again, that we see the world the same way, because it looks as if we see the world as it is, and because the differences might not be that great. But the first thing is, we, we just don't know what the diversity of perceptual experiences is among most of us. At the extremes, we have words for this. We have autism, ADHD, synesthesia, psychosis, and so on. But in the middle range, we kind of assume that there's a single neurotypical way of perceiving things. And one of the projects that, that I'm doing right now, this is a, forgive the slight sidebar plug, but I have this uh, project. No, please do. Go. It's a project called the Perception Census, in which we're trying really for the first time at a very large scale to map out the diversity in how we each experience the world. So it's a, it's a set of on, anyone can do it. Um, you, just, you just need your own computer and it's a series of like interactive illusions and little experiments and surveys and brain teasers that will help us get a sense of how different our inner universes actually are in terms of vision, in terms of hearing, in terms of emotion, in terms of perceiving the flow of time, things like this. So we're trying to paint a picture of this hidden landscape of inner diversity. And then the idea is by recognizing that, I think cultivating a humility, if you like, about the fact that the way we see things is not necessarily the way they are. And here's where you come in. I think cultivating that recognition that everything that we perceive comes partly from within helps us or could help us build platforms for empathy and communication with others that might indeed even reach up to these higher levels. So that, that's an incredibly important point, actually. And you're right to pick me up on, on the, the, those subtle differences, because actually, as you say, in the case of neurodiversity or even differences of age, maybe mentioned in a book or elsewhere, uh, the idea that, you know, say babies probably don't experience suffering, so they don't need an anesthetic. You know, there are all sorts of quite extraordinary decisions that have been made in the past uh, from inferences about what it's like to be a different type of human uh, in terms of age or, or you know, having, having some uh, cognitive impairment or whatever it is, that now already look grotesque. Uh, and we therefore do need to be quite aware of whether we are making those equivalent mistakes now. And and it, it has incredibly strong policy implications. For example, in the case of people uh, in, in comas, people in, with dementia, you know, when you talk about assisted dying, for example, we're making all sorts of judgments about the level of aliveness, or let alone consciousness, uh, in people towards the end of life that might turn out to be completely wrong. Yes. I mean, I think that this idea that understanding consciousness or, or, or thinking about consciousness is a sort of philosophical armchair problem with no practical or political implications is, is, is totally wrong. It has, it has loads. And, and they range from, as you said, these very, very clear and present clinical questions about what happens in dementia, what happens in after severe brain injury, and so on, 
to, I think, some of these more subtle questions about what are the implications of the recognition that we live in individual distinct perceptual universes, even though it seems like we don't? How does that spiral? How does that ratchet up into polarised political views? And indeed, how can we use the recognition that perception is a kind of construction to break out of the sort of perceptual echo chambers and then the the social media echo chambers that are increasingly divisive and polarising. I think there are lots of lots of implications from all this. We're running short of time, so I want to just cycle back briefly to again the sort of practical implications. Bringing in the example that we we dealt with earlier of extremely persuasively intelligent robots or, or artificial systems, because it strikes me. We're not that far away from a model where a machine is better able to evaluate all the various different options more efficiently than the person. So just um, think of a, a sort of a, a hypothetical example. A court system, a robot judge might be able to much more efficiently, not just efficiently, but just much better understand everything that went into the motivation and the understanding of the whole system that led someone to commit a certain act. Or even more, there was, I can't remember the, the, the film where people decided this person is absolutely, as far as you can say, predestined to commit a crime at a certain point. And therefore, the, the socially right thing to do is to intervene early before they do that. How far away are we from that sort of model? And what are the implications that we should be thinking about now for a democracy where slightly flaky human beings have to still keep keep a handle on on that and assert our primacy over those sorts of systems that was a big long question for which i apologize it's minority report isn't it the film that's the one yeah that's the thing i was reaching for there's a lot there i mean just to take the point of ai systems setting aside the what we were talking about earlier about whether they're actually conscious or not they are becoming more and more part of our everyday lives this is where most of our worry budget needs to be spent It's exactly that kind of scenario that is concerning. In medicine, this is already happening, right? We have AI systems that are very good, perhaps better than some human experts at, for instance, interpreting um, x-rays for signs of cancer, something like that. But currently, a human is always in the loop. And that seems to be very important. There are several reasons for that. One is that most machine learning AI systems are pretty opaque in how they make their decisions. You know, you get you train them on a ton of data, and then they come up with a with a prediction, which can work quite well in specific contexts. But it's often very unclear how they reach that prediction. So these things often work best in in tandem with a human rather than completely replacing. So there's still some accountability. Um, you can still then ask the human on what basis they made the decision, took that advice into into account. In, in something like law, I think it's, the, the point is even sharper, right? Because it, it, you're, you're making value judgments about somebody's behavior, not judgments about whether they're ill or not or what disease they might have. So it seems even more important that you have a human in the loop. Yet we know that humans are biased about these things. And so we don't make perfect decisions. And I think we, we're all com- comfortable with the fact we don't make, we, we know that we don't make perfect decisions. Simply accepting that and then transferring the decision-making burden onto an artificial algorithm that has been, say, trained on all previous court cases in history to make decisions just doesn't seem to me to be a very sensible thing to do um, because you won't, you, you, you won't, it won't be flexible to new situations. It won't be able to justify the decisions that it's made. And there are all sorts of biases that are built into data sets. 
And I think this is one of the big problems. It's already the issue that, and this has come up repeatedly, that face recognition algorithms, or especially algorithms designed to, re- to recognize facial expressions, work much better on white people's faces than on black people's faces because of the training set data. And these are biases that get built in that we might not be aware that we're doing. That's an easy, in hindsight, that's an easy example. But right now, who knows what biases are being built into data sets that are being used to train AI models for all sorts of things. So until these these issues of training bias and transparency are solved, I think it's still very, very important to, to caveat, to put lots of guardrails around how much we rely on algorithms to actually make decisions. We can do that, I think, while still recognizing that they can be extremely good at doing the things they do. But let's not overgeneralize it. Let's not just divest too much human responsibility. Daniel Dennett, one of my mentors, brilliant philosopher, said about AI, we should, we should always remember that we're building tools, not colleagues. That Dennett quote sounds, sounds absolutely right, but it raises this, what I think is probably going to be, have to be the last question, which is, if you look at our incredibly clunky analog political architecture, which, you know, I mean, I sit in the House of Commons sometimes and, and watch this process and it's so, you know, even in a generous appraisal, appallingly badly set up to cope with some of these questions. Is there anything with your, I think it's fair to say, more advanced understanding of the way consciousness works and these issues are going to interact with human experience? Anything that, that, that you would like to see, maybe practical is the wrong word, but just in terms of how we integrate these, these changes in the way we're understanding this stuff with the way we actually make public policy and operate a democracy. So there's a vast question from which you can pick anything you like uh, to say uh, as a final thought. I mean, it is, is a clunky system, isn't it? It seems to be creaking. And I think we're seeing how democracy can be hacked in all sorts of ways. But it probably still is. What's the old quote? That, that you know, democracy is, is the worst possible system of government apart from all the other ones. It's still, it's still the best that we've got. But there are things that come out from cognitive science, psychology now. I think are really important for guarding against the potential of democracy to go completely off the rails. And, and these could be recognising that our perceptions and therefore beliefs, you know, our beliefs get bootstrapped from our perceptions and can be driven in these dynamics of polarization through very understandable processes of inference and minimization of surprise of new information and so on. I think that just underscores the importance of institutions. Institutions, for instance, to deliver news uh, rather than editorial. I lived for America for quite a few years, and the absence of an institution like the BBC was very, very striking, because for for all its faults, there is this idea that the BBC has a mandate to, to present some sort of baseline level of objectivity about what's going on. That just expectation isn't there in other countries. I think that's, that's hugely important. And you could say equivalent stories for many other institutions, because institutions provide us, if they're designed set up correctly, they provide us with the mechanisms to push back against the cognitive biases, the perceptual biases, that, that we have. That's always been their role. And I worry very much about the, the kind of anti-institutional rhetoric that is increasingly in abundance. And the other thing is, I honestly think that just a wider appreciation of some of these basic points about the fact that our perceptual experiences are constructed and the fact that how things seem to us is not necessarily how they are and that other people might experience the same situation differently 
can be a, a useful tonic. I mean, this is a bit more of a hope, an idealistic hope rather than a practical suggestion. But that recognition deeply embedded in each of us will allow greater understanding communication between people who end up believing very different things. There's a story, and I'll finish with this. There's a story that I read a few years ago um, about a meeting in the Vatican between the then leader of Sudan and, and a rebel leader. This was when Sudan was, was separating into two countries and there'd been a war. And there'd been a meeting in the Vatican. And the first evening of that meeting, the Pope and, and the two opposing leaders had a dinner in silence. And that really struck me. I was wondering why they had a dinner in silence. And of course, I don't know because I wasn't there and I can't really just ask the Pope. But I like to think the reason they did that was because they were in a situation where they could all kind of agree about what was going on, that they were in a room, that they were eating food, and that that was happening. And I like to think that that alignment of perceptions might have provided a platform for then communication about things that they actually disagreed violently about. So I would like to see every politician go through a basic course in cognitive science to understand how perception works and how beliefs end up getting scaffolded by our basic perceptual encounters with the world and with other people. That's a great note to finish on. And, and it ties in so nicely with, I'm going to give you a little plug for your book here now, because one of the things it achieves so well is the sort of demystification of consciousness by building up an understanding of, of, of how the whole of the complexity and what seems to be the mystery and the metaphysics of the universe is, is a process of different perception. And I, and I love this idea that actually you said before you used the word humility, and that is obviously also part of empathy, where if we just can agree, work towards an understanding of, of the sort of foundational experiences that we all have in common, sitting, just having a meal in silence, you know, eating the same food in the same room, then you can just build up from there towards a common understanding of much more complicated and sophisticated systems. And that could be the foundation of, of bridging the kinds of divides that, that even turn into civil wars. I think that's a, a, you know, we like to be optimistic on this podcast at the end of the day. And that seems to me an incredibly hopeful note to finish on. Uh, and also you, you, you still haven't had any caffeine. So, so we should let you, let you go. It just remains to say then, and all Seth, thank you so much for giving us so much of your time for helping spread enlightenment on this incredibly challenging for some people subject and, and for having written such a great book that isn't challenging at all and is in fact just very stimulating. Well, thanks for having me. It's been a real pleasure to, to go quite considerably out of my wheelhouse and talk about all sorts of things. And, and if any of your listeners would like to help with this research, uh, please take part in the Perception Census. It's online. You can find it on my webpage, anilseth.com or just look up perceptionsensus.dreammachine.world. Um, and everybody taking part really does make a massive difference and will really help us uncover new things about the human mind. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.